this week on the Back Table Podcast. You know, if I think about all the things like a family will ask me, things are going on in their brain at like one month of life when they find out their kid is deaf, right? Always thinking about things like sports and academics and all these things. And they can do these things very well, but they still need to be ushered even after that critical period of like when they start to get into school. And I think it's not in our realm to typically think about this as otolaryngologists, right? We're not teachers and all this kind of stuff. But I've definitely seen that as time has gone on, I've really taken on just making sure that like we really plug them in with the resources appropriately. So if they are succeeding, it does take work even after they've left our halls. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. If you're a returning listener, you know our goal here is medical education in otolaryngology. We seek to accomplish this through conversations with experts in the field, and we hope that you can take this information and apply it to your practice. I'm Ashley Agan, and I'm a general otolaryngologist practicing in an academic setting at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. And I'm Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing in Dallas, Texas, Children's Health at UT Southwestern. We're your hosts, and we're so glad you stopped by today. How are you doing, Ash? I'm good, Gopi. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I'm excited today because I have an old friend who's on the show who's our guest today, uh, Dr. Prashant Maholtra. He's a pediatric otolaryngologist at The Ohio State University. Dr. Maholtra was my chief resident when I was a PGY2 at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital in Philadelphia. He went on, he left me, went on to Palo Alto <laughs> to complete a pediatric otolaryngology fellowship at Stanford. And he's here today to talk to us about pediatric cochlear implantation. Welcome to the show, Precious. <laughs> Gopi, it's great to be here. It's so nice to see you. It's nice to see you as well. I don't know how we got the name Precious at the time, but you'll always forever be Precious. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I think, uh, um, you know, we were briefly just talking about before how the nicknames are a thing here. And I think in a residency program, I think as a lot of residency programs, you get to know each other so well and you kind of need that informality. So I don't know why Precious. It just, you know? it just humanized the experience yeah. for me there. <laughs> it carried me at our lunches at Qdoba on coal. I don't know the last time I ate at Qdoba, I was thinking about that. I was like, I think it was with Precious, like in 2010. I remember uh, eating those bacon sandwiches with yeah. the guy, the food truck right outside, yeah? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mimosas and samosas. Well, <laughs> if we're not able to do pediatric ENT, mimosas and samosas. We're going to have a food truck, guys. That's what that's about. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice, and then we'll uh, get into the topic of pediatric cochlear implants. Yeah. Um, I myself, I um, grew up in Ohio and then wanted to leave Ohio as soon as I was able to. So I went to the Chicago area for, you know, uh, undergrad, went back to Case for med school, and then went on to do ENT residency at Jefferson, like you brought up. Um, and uh, after fellowship at Stanford, then I actually was at the Cleveland Clinic for a few years in practice before ending up here where uh, I'm at now in Columbus. And so that was a great experience being at the clinic uh, and fondly remember that group there. Um, but I really was sort of recruited to come down to Columbus to work on that hearing program or pediatric cochlear implant, you know, program side of things. And I've been here for about eight years. Um, so my practice is about 75% pretty much pediatric otology at this point. So I do that, but I do all the tertiary care stuff, you know, for call. For, I'm an academic tertiary pediatric center. So Nationwide Children's is a pretty, actually, huge hospital. So it's, you know, I enjoy an academic tertiary care practice. That's what I'm doing right now. 
So you're still doing the airway form bodies when they come in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I mean, it's nice. We have a big group. There's about 13 of us pe pediatric people here. Um, so now it, it does allow me to be able to specialize. There's two of us um, at you know, Oliver Dunco's at Iowa State. And he and I are the two main people who do the pediatric otology stuff. So the whole group kind of funnels the ear stuff to us for the most part. And uh, it allows us to sort of develop in the subspecialties when peds, which is really nice for us. That's awesome. Awesome. Yeah, t today we're really going to focus on um, pediatric cochlear implantation. And we've had some podcasts on congenital hearing loss. You know, episode 16, we had Rachel St. John and Walter Coots. Um, and then we had um, uh, Jake Hunter talking to us about adult cochlear implantation in episode 15. Um, so uh, for any of our listeners who haven't um, caught those, you know, highly recommend you check those out. So we won't um, rehash anything we talked about back then, but today, our, you know, our focus is pediatric cochlear implantation. So um, maybe you can kind of set the stage for us and talk about how these patients present to you for evaluation. Sure. Uh, it comes in a wide variety of, ra of ways, you know, so the, the program has really changed a lot over the years. And I'll say that when it first came, there wasn't a lot of dedication to the, you know, developing the PCI part of things. So you know, we're doing about 10 to 15, 10 to 12 implants a year is what they're doing. And over a couple of years, we, you know, one of the things I was proud of is that we sort of were able to kind of coordinate the group and really develop the practice so that we're now at a point of doing about 80 implants, PG's implants a year. So we're pretty busy now. And so I'll say during that evolution, we've definitely had a change in how kids came to us as well. All right. So um, now, so early on when you're sort of establishing yourself or really, you know, laying the groundwork for people to know about the program and what it's like, there wasn't a lot of standardization to it. And part of our standardization was to really make sure from newborn hearing screening in not only our own hospital, birthing hospitals, but the surrounding birthing hospitals is to make sure that all of those, you know, early capture of patients is more standardized. So we really try to have a big influence in the surrounding community um, and throughout the state, really. So we do have done a lot of outreach there. So how they come to us now has changed so that we are able to really see the newborn babies right after identification, which is so key. I mean, in the end, our success with pediatric cochlear implantation really starts from that very beginning. Right. So the more we can impact the surrounding community to really, you know, follow up the newborn hearing screening, really get the early ABR testing done and uh, send them to us very early. If there's a concern, you know, we're starting to really see kids right from the start. I don't know if I answered your question the way you're intending. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think that they, you know, they present to us now, our goal is to really see them right upon identification, right, right on the hearing loss. And, and we're not just a pediatric implant center. We actually manage kids with hearing losses of all types. So, you know, even the, you know, conductive losses, the my, more mild sensory hearing losses, the unilateral losses, you know, as well as those that are, you know, we have a Ohio School for the Deaf here in Columbus. So we have a lot of culturally deaf community. There's a strong cultural deaf community here. So we do take care of kids who are also signing culturally deaf kids as well who still need their needs met. So for the uh, pediatric CI population, what percentage is your newborn failed hearing screen? That's the sort of the infant. And then what percent is, are you implanting your maybe delayed onset or, you know, your older kids that are over the age of two, I guess, your prelingual and postlingual maybe categories? Right. So I think that, you know, earlier on, we were capturing a lot of the older kids who were sort of, there's a backlog essentially of getting them taken care of. Um, so that 
you know, probably earlier on eight years ago would have been more of a, we were capturing a lot of post-lingual late ID and that would have been probably more 80%. I would say now it's still probably, I would say we're capturing the young babies and kids, you know, it's probably more like a 50% kind of realm now. We still see, you know, with ideologies like congenital CMV and other progressive losses and things, as actually we've implemented, you know, targeted and then universal screening for CMV in our NICUs and trying to extend them in the surrounding areas, we're capturing those kids and monitoring it very carefully and then following them when they become implantable later on. But I would still say, I mean, we're probably 50% of the babies at this point. And what does the appointment look like? You know, I guess first we can talk about the patients who were diagnosed at birth. So, you know, they've failed their newborn hearing screen and they're maybe referred, you know, to have additional testing. What um, can parents expect, you know, as they go through that process to the point of when they're actually being recommended for a cochlear implant? After diagnosis, which may be done in an outside facility, then they'll come to us. But we are we have a pretty wide catchment area. So we kind of capture them at first. So actually a, a very you know consistent message from the very beginning is incredibly valuable. We've got good relationships now with a lot of this running audiologists and they know, generally speaking, it's pretty, people are pretty well aware of now when they're coming to CI category level. And when they come in there within our program, even after that first diagnostic APR is complete, that audiologist may even say, hey, look, you know, we need to set up an ENT appointment, a follow-up audiology appointment, and from there we'll start the diagnostics and they'll kind of lay that groundwork. At that first ENT appointment with me then, right, the families are typically, I'll make sure that they will, that I review, I sort of view that these counseling appointments are super essential in taking the appropriate amount of time to do it. And, the re and I tell this with the residents and the fellows as well, is that I honestly believe that if we don't take the time to do it, nobody else really does. I don't think that a lot of general ENTs feel very comfortable with the counseling of that pediatric cochlear implantation kind of counseling pathway. I think they don't want to put words in the mouth of, you know, the program they might refer to. The general pediatricians don't typically feel very comfortable counseling on permanent hearing losses. Um, and so I take that ownership on very strongly of saying, okay, well, you know, what I do is I'll start with, you know, going over the hearing testing, looking over the ABR results, kind of, you know, explaining what sense neural conductive, what that means that it's permanent and kind of, you know, walk them through all that stuff. Not so much with the intent of um, overwhelming them with information, but at least making sure they understand that. So they make it to the next appointment. I really want to make sure that at that first appointment, they understand the gravity of it and they make the next appointment with audiology and the next appointment with me. Every family is going to be, I'm going to treat a little bit differently based on where they're at, you know, and I think in peds, we're all accustomed to kind of, you know, um, kind of reading a family a bit and some families come in the door and they're like, I know my kid needs implants. When can I get my implants? And then there's some kids are so overwhelmed by the concept of a kid might actually have a hearing loss or not believing of it. Then I'm going to kind of have to gauge how I counsel that first appointment based on where they're at. All right. But I do go through that. I don't necessarily bring up CI as a strategy in that first appointment. I don't, it's a little bit cart before the horse, but I may bring up that that's a possibility if they're already in that bilateral severe to profound range. I totally hear you. And even as a pediatric ENT who does not do pediatric CIs, I think that counseling session, you know, before I refer them to our program, it's hard. And I don't know if I've always covered all of the concerns. And like you said, every family, there's such a degree of, of you know, I find the same gravity of the otherwise healthy baby. And this is the one thing they have versus the constellation of symptoms going on. There's heart, lung, there's a lot of other things going on. And yet you still have this 
hearing. And for both, it's very, it's very uh, difficult um, to kind of gauge and read and know how to counsel and advise. Yeah. And so some families, I'm going to kind of do a bit of a quicker play and some I'm going to do a bit of a slow play and say, hey, look, yeah. you know what, let's just make sure we go to the hearing aid evaluation or get our second ABR, whatever we need to, and then we'll meet again. And then we'll kind of take the next steps. I typically at that first appointment, we'll try to do two things is really set up the diagnostic pathway of what we're going to do. And then also the, what do we do about a part treatment pathway? And at least, and how deep I delve into that, I'm going to tailor that towards the family. But my first appointment is really, and actually all the follow-up appointments are really, where am I at on that? Okay. My diagnostic part, do we know the reason why? And then what are we doing about it? And are we, where we need to be on our timeline for that? Do you mind going over? I know we've talked about workup and congenital hearing loss, but I would love to hear your personal like algorithm or diagnostic part. What is your, do you have a checklist in your head, kind of how you do it? Yeah, I have a questionnaire, which is pretty thorough that asks a lot of the historical con things that are like perinatal stuff, such as, you know, the prematurity, hyperbilirubinemia, what is, you know, ECMO exposure, all that stuff. Then the, um, I, there's a family historic history part of it, which delves into the, you know, is it, what's the familial side of it and what kind of, you know, pattern of hearing loss could it be if it's genetic in nature? Um, and then I do a thorough physical and history, physical exam, which obviously in infants is fairly limited, but I make sure I look at the, you know, do a good periauricular exam. I look at the eyes, I look at the palate, I look for branchial anomalies. And so those are the main things an infant I'm going to look at an obvious facial dysmorphisms or asymmetry. Now, if something comes up pretty clearly there, like they're an X24 weaker with all this exposure, and if it's a readily apparent diagnosis already, or they come to me already known with CMV or something like that, then I don't necessarily chase it too hard, you know, if it's an apparent diagnosis. If it's really an unknown diagnosis, which the vast majority are, then I'm then going to usually do, if they can see them very early, I'll do a CMV IgG. Oftentimes, I'm not going to see them within three weeks. So I want to at least know as early as I can if they've been CMV exposed even if I can't really do it, that diagnostic within three week type of saliva or urine test. But I'll do that in Connexin. So with one blood draw, I'll typically do Connexin and CMV IgG. Then I can at least, you know, Connexin comes back at our institution, it's in the house. So we get it back within a few weeks. So I start with that targeted text, test if it's a bilateral loss. You know, that's usually at that first visit, I'm going to have them do that. So that by the next visit, I'll know the Connexin status and whether they have CMV exposure or not. Then after that, then it's sort of, you know, I'll offer things like, you know, I usually will get imaging, especially if we're talking about implant level. I'm going to want an MRI, you know, unless I know the connection in case, which I'll be comfortable like a CT. Uh, but I don't want to know the nerve status and the MRI will let me look at that much better. So if there's syndromic, I'll want an MRI and a CT typically, you know, like a charge syndrome or something along those lines. And if after imaging and initial testing, then I am... I'll typically do the next generation sequence genetic testing, like the otoscope panel from Iowa, one of those, right? Um, I encourage families to do it. It's not a must, but I, I typically can, uh, it's typically well covered. So I'll do a genetics referral. Our genetics people will pre-authorize it, write a letter to get it, you know, uh, covered. And we have good experience and um, good success with getting the next generation sequence genetic panel of like the 170 different genes uh, done. So. You know, it sort of depends on whether it's unilateral or bilateral, you know, but that's, I usually will do that combination of making sure I know my CMV status, my connection status, my imaging, and then the overall genetic status down the line. And when patients come in, are they seeing like a team? Do you, do you have a, a pediatric CI team that helps with like the other aspects of the process? Yeah. So 
you know, this is one of those things that definitely evolved this time on. We used to have like a multidisciplinary hearing clinic um, where we had audiology, speech, ENT, and social work involved. We've then sort of changed that into more, as our volume got high enough, it then became not very efficient for us. You know, when, you think, when you're doing 10 implants a year, you can do that. When you have 80 implants a year, we need our audiologist, CI audiologist, not to be, you know, wrapped up in an inefficient multidisciplinary clinic. So what we've transferred, transitioned to, and I think it's, you know, has worked wonderfully for us, is we actually have, um, we keep our appointments independent. So if they're going to see speech, they're going to be seeing speech for either an evaluation or for therapy. They're going to see audiology, going to be doing it for either their, you know, diagno their diagnostic testing, for their hearing aid fitting, for their pre-CI uh, evaluation where they go over all the equipment and device selection, or their CI mapping and other stuff. But all of that is done separately or an ENT appointment with me. But what we do is we have a meeting every week at which audiologists, speech therapists, and the surgeons are there every Thursday morning. We have an hour long meeting where we discuss every patient, all right? So basically new IDs, cochlear implant, radar patients, candidate patients, those who are having surgery, anyone who there's been a problem with, we have a little list that we keep, which anybody can add to. And then we talk about those patients as we need to. So it becomes like a virtual multidisciplinary kind of concept, right? So then we know we're at, at that meeting, you know, we're all there and we've, you know, carved it out. It's like 7.30 to 8.30 on Thursdays. So that we have a discussion. We know we have our plan set. We know we get all the things done. Are they vaccinated? Are their imaging done? Is there, you know, we cut talk through all that stuff. And then, but we let the appointments actually be independently done so that from a billing standpoint and from a, you know, templating of schedules standpoint, it's all done in a way that, you know, is most efficient and less redundancy for the family. We also then have a common philosophy amongst ourselves with ENT, speech, and audiology that at each one of our appointments, we check to make sure they have the other appointments scheduled. So anytime they see me, I make sure they have their, e their audiology and speech appointments arranged. When they see speech, they make sure they have their ENT and audiology appointments arranged. And therefore, so we built in the redundancy so that we're all making sure that the patient is seeing all three services as they need to. Social work is embedded in our ENT clinic, so they can always see, we can always call the social worker you know, who has part of our department to help assist with any needs as we need them. We have nurses who actively do a lot of organization and coordination stuff. So I have a nurse in my clinic and Dr. Duncan has a nurse in his clinic who are two dedicated hearing program nurses really who help facilitate a lot of the coordination, care coordination stuff. So that's how we kind of have it set up in a way that for a high volume practice, we're able to kind of make it work. We're fortunate we have the resources we can do it that way. So do you have like your uh, hearing loss or otology clinic then where you see your ear patients or you, do you have, do you see some of these patients just come into your general clinic? Yeah, it used to be a little bit more um, carved out. I had more of like a general clinic, which would be for all the things, you know, tonsils, you know, airway, whatever, neck masses and stuff. And then more of an otology clinic where the hearing loss stuff was. But as we moved away from that prior hearing clinic model, now, honestly, I'll see new ID kids, implant kids and everything in any clinic. So any, yeah. it's just from an access standpoint, it just, you know, now that my practice has really gone to mostly otology, then there's really no difference in clinics for me anymore. So one question I had was, um, you know, we say, you know, screen by month, ID by three months, AIDS by six months. How do we know when the AIDS aren't benefiting those babies? Yeah. You know, so we, we've actually kind of gone to more of a one, two, three model. You know, that's what we were actually striving for 
sooner than the 136. Yeah. Um, which I think you're referring to the JCIH, you know, and EDI, the early hearing detection um, and intervention uh, standards of 136. So we're, we're sort of a one, two, three, and we put processes in place, like, you know, with our ABR scheduling and other things to really try to keep that timeline as compressed as possible. Now, when it comes to like the hearing aid and a, are you asking about like a hearing aid trial, that kind of concept? Yeah. You know, you got to try the hearing aids and show that there's not ben maximal like benefit from them, right? Before you can right. jump to the CI, even for profound bilateral sensor neural hearing, I, I thought. Yeah. And, and so I think the idea of a formal trial is not, I mean, we still, we do it, right? We get them the hearing aids on right away, you know, on average at our program at around three to four months of age. And then um, we do have them on, but we, we don't make it a strict thing. So it used to be like a strict thing. If you're not compliant with the hearing aids, you know, then we're not going to consider you a great candidate for a cochlear implantation or whatever. But the reality of it is, is, you know, if you're in that, you know, if you have a 80 decibel loss, you're about 80% likely to be where a CI is going to be a preferential over a hearing aid. If you have a greater than 95 decibel loss, you're a greater 95% chance that you're going to, a CI is going to be beneficial to you. So you know, early ABRs do predict a little bit early on who's going to benefit more from CI versus hearing aids, right? So a, a bilateral non-response no ABR, we, we make sure that, you know, those kids, we're, we're really going to keep the timeline for cochlear implantation to be done as early as possible, which, you know, we'll do at nine months of age. Nothing really delays that timeline. And there's very little data to support that a hearing aid trial in infants at that age has significant no, we need to prove it. We need to prove lack of aided benefit. And that's very important for us to do. We do that in an aided setting, you know, at a separate appointment where we do speech audiometry, we do question of testing, we do all these things and demonstrate, it's important to demonstrate the lack of benefit. But actually, you know, like we're using the data logging and compliance for a hearing aid and doing it for a set period of time. If I'm, if they come to me a little bit late and I see them at seven months of age, I'm not going to make them wear hearing aids with a bilateral profound loss for a certain period of time before I implant them, because I know that one of the most fundamentally critical things I can do is get the implant in early. And that has clear data to support its benefit, right? So once we've proven lack of benefit, the duration of time to wear the hearing aids is not very meaningful to us, right? Insurance companies are starting to get away from requiring that as well. That used to be one of the kinds of things we had to kind of fight, but it's less of an issue now. And before we move on to talking about the surgery, can you talk a little bit about kids who come to you who are postlingually deaf? What are the differences? You know, are there is there anything you know that stands out, or is is it the same? Um, no, I mean it's nice that at least if they're postlingually deaf, then our focus is less on the communication modality of like, okay, can we get this kid who you know uh, are we able to get them speaking right? And all the therapy so intense, you know, that first three years of life is so critical from a developmental standpoint. So if they're going to cross that boundary of like having a foundation of spoken language, then that means a huge deal for them as far as we're going to be able to pick up if they lose hearing afterwards, like in a sudden loss or a progressive loss or EVAs or something like that. So generally speaking, at least we can let them, you know, the success of the implants is that they can kind of plug back into hearing what they used to do. And they tend to perform very well, right? As long as you know, the etiology for the hearing losses supports good nerve anatomy and cochlear anatomy. But I think that it does a lot. Usually if they're at that age, we can, you know, get more dedicated speech reception testing. And we have a lot more harder data with looking at, you know, their abilities. You know, we have literacy data, we have 
their speech perception data with like, you know, closure, open word set testing. Well, the infants, it's really challenging to kind of get some of this stuff. And you, you're kind of basing a lot of it on the degree of hearing loss. So I guess in the end, you know, the older kids, it's easier for us to get our, you know, behavioral audiometry data and all the other kinds of data that we need. I think that the success tends to be very good when we're talking about the bilateral hearing losses. We'll say where we're learning is this emerging um, single-sided deafness CI. Older kids don't do as well with single-sided deafness CI. Um, and that might be a bit of a tangential discussion. I don't want to get too off topic, but there is, when you have a normal hearing ear, someone really relying on the you know, the lesser quality sound that comes from an implant, even if they have a good quality sound for an implant, older kids don't really necessarily adopt it right away when it's for single-sided deafness. So that's one way I think at least postlingually, I do generally, I'm going to expect most of those kids to do well if they're implanted pretty soon after their drop, but the single-sided deafness patients, I would call them out a little bit and say, we really have to carefully counsel those guys. Yeah. I guess um, for single side, just to go on the tangent for a second, um, yeah. the single sided deafness, two questions. One, um, how often are you doing those in kids? And two, do you find that uh, something like a Baja or cross is ever better? Like, how do you know when to implant for single sided deafness? Because we do have other alternatives for those as well. What makes them a cochlear implant at that stage? Yeah, there's um, probably the two things that are most beneficial for how well they're going to do with single sided deafness are age and motivation. And so as far as, you know, the alternatives, which include across the Baja and FM system observation, and then CI, the CI is the only one that can truly bring sound to that ear. The other ones are really just going to help with, you know, a little bit, of, they're not going to help sound localization, not going to help true sound perception in that ear. So that they can help with some of the complex listening environments and, you know, the head turning and the, um, some of the more subtle aspects that a child is not really able to tell you about until they're older. And so this little bit of a younger kids aren't going to be very successful with those alternative options, right? Because honestly, it's just too hard to understand the benefit in a, you know, in a two-year-old, you know, they're not really going to understand why bother with a, something like a bone anchored hearing aid in our experience. Whereas by the time they are able to understand that benefit, they're so much older and then they're sort of out of the CI window. But I think it's a fundamental dilemma that we encounter. You know, we just actually have a study we're presenting at the American Cochlear Implant Alliance, um, where we have a large selection of SSD kids, you know, about, it's about 38, I think, of children that we've implanted in the last several years. And so our experience is, you know, the younger is the better. And so about three to four years of age, somewhere around that age, but certainly younger is better. Past about four, the speech perception, how long it takes to actually attain quality speech perception could take up to a year, whereas in your bilateral hearing loss kids, it could take, and all the SSD kids, it's taking many more months up to a year before you get the highest quality speech perception. The habilitation afterwards is more challenging. There's a lot more non-compliance or not wanting to use the CI long-term in those kids. And that cutoff seems to us to be around four years of age. The habilitation really has to focus on, you know, covering your good ear, doing habilitation on that bad ear. But a kid who's going to be sort of, you know, it's tough to convince them when they're older, sort of like, why do that when you can hear well out of your other ear? So it poses a problem that's pretty unique. And I think that we are seeing benefit to doing it, but it, we have to, we're realizing it's a bit more 
appropriately selected. Yeah, that's interesting. Going back to families who are who are consulting with you, how do you explain to families how a CI works? You know, I think some people imagine it being like kind of magic, you know, and you know, in fully implanted, no external processor. You hear normally, you know, magic. Yeah. Can Can you tell us how it really works? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I can. I think what I, you know, I mean, one, I, I fundamentally believe this is sort of a phenomenal device, right? It's one of the most successful neuroprostheses. You know, the tomtopic nature, the cochlea can allow a linear electrode array to really work in an effective way. Whereas, you know, like a brachial plexus or other parts are not, I mean, they're too complicated, right? But having that linear tonotopic nature of the cochlea and the, you know, central and the organization all the way up to the brain, I mean, it's pretty amazing. So I, I, I do say like, I do find it almost magical that way myself still, right? Now, what I tell families is not that. What I tell families <laughs> is... You should. I think they would appreciate it. Like, man, he's so passionate. Like a unicorn, Emma. I, I mean, it's just cool, right? I mean, it really is. And, and I think that, I mean... And so I, I definitely want to convey, look, I mean, I, I first I appropriately counsel to each family based on etiology and age and all those things. I try to give a realistic expectation of what they're going to get with an implant, right? Um, you know, so the connection baby and the charge kid are going to, I'm going to not say the same things, right? But as far as how it works, right? I always point out that there's an external and an internal. And I guess I first should say that, you know, I give a spiel. And then the audiologists also have a separate pre-device selection where they go over, they go over all three manufacturers. Um, it's done independently of the surgeon. They uh, talk over the equipment, they go over all the accessories and whistles and bells, and they kind of, you know, do a whole um, before surgery, during surgery, after surgery kind of slideshow. All right. So it's done at a separate appointment as well, where, you know, that's the focus of the appointment. So it's not lost in the overwhelming everything else that's being done. As far as my spiel, what I will point out is, look, you know, there's an external part, there's an internal part. I'm going to be putting the internal part in. You'll get the external part two weeks later when we turn to do the first activation. And that's when the audiologist will give you the equipment and go over all the external equipment. The external part has a microphone, which picks up the, you know, in the environment coming, the sound coming from the environment. It goes through a digital processor, right? Which then it gets broken up basically into all the different signals across all the different frequencies. It goes across the coil with a magnet attached to the internal part with radio frequency. And that delivers the information to the internal part, which stimulates and powers the electrode array that stimulates the nerve, send, nerve endings in the cochlea. And I kind of leave it at that, right? And if they have more questions and I talk about it more, and I'll delve into it. You know, honestly, most families will come to me. Like, so I'll, in the early appointments, before I actually get into the nitty gritty of the CI, I'll bring up the IWCI, we'll give them information about it. We'll give them, you know, um, we'll kind of touch on it lightly, but most families will go out and do a lot of research on their own, talk to families, look at the websites and, and oftentimes we'll have, you know, pretty good information. Either they tend to be either like very trusting and they just like, don't ask a lot of information or they've done a lot of detailed digging. All right. And so then I can, you know, just kind of polish off some of the questions that they've got. And when you think about um, surgery, do you think about it differently based on age? Like is implanting a nine-month-old, uh, how different is it than that of like um, a 10-year-old or a five-year-old with SS, uh, single-sided deafness? I guess I'll answer it two ways. Some ways, not that different to me. I don't think about it very much. The, the ones that I really think about ahead of time are the ones that have, you know, different anatomy. And those are the ones I'm going to be sort of like really thinking very, you know, either complex medical concerns or complex anatomy, like a charge kid. You know, those are the ones that are like, I, you know, I, I will 
you know, take an extra pause, but I actually don't really, you know, the nine month old kids, the difference, so the differences in anatomy and them. So first of all, I think the safety profile has been demonstrated to be there, both in prospective and, you know, like NISQIP data kind of stuff, you know, national database kind of data looking at, you know, under 12, 12 months of age versus over 12 months of age is pretty well established looking at both intraoperative and postoperative complications, right? So I think that at least, you know, if you're accustomed to doing this CI surgery, there are some modifications to be made, but generally speaking, not that different a surgery. The main things that I do differently in a young child who's nine months of age is um, I'm careful with injection on the external part. Um, I always palpate the mastoid tip to make sure I kind of know how developed it is. I don't let my infiltration of lidocaine go down below the EAC, um, just in case there is a superficial component of the nerve there. I go to a diamond drill early because you, that lateral third of the mastoid is not pneumatized and has a lot of marrow. And so once I get to the cortex, I pretty much go to a diamond drill pretty quickly because it helps you really get that soft marrow bone down and, you know, get any oozing under control pretty quickly. Um, the mastoids are small. I make sure I really drill out the mastoid tip all the way to the mastoid tip because it's very easy when I work in the residents of fellows, I always say, look, you know, you may not think you need this, but you need it all the way down to the mastoid tip because otherwise when you're drilling at the facial recess and facial nerve, you're kind of honed in in a very small space and you want broad strokes, you know, to help keep you safe. So your technique keeps you safe. So the more you have this exposure at maximally out laterally, then the better it is as you're getting in the recess and you're staying safer without, you know, being, uh, because of the poor development of the mastoid tip, it really keeps you up higher than you think you are otherwise. But otherwise, they tend to be very healthy mastoids. The young kids tend to go very easily and smoothly. You know, I'm not worried about the blood loss level that's there. It's typically not very substantial. And the goal is to kind of do it very quickly so you get the young child out of anesthesia very fast. So, you know, typically, you know, like the bilateral I had yesterday on Friday, you know, nine-month-old. So I'm, we're done in about three hours, a little three and a half hours with bilateral. So we, they're pretty quick mastoids and, you know, tend to be pretty healthy. And you mentioned, you know, special considerations for kids who have inner ear malformations. Mm -hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit more and just talk about, you know, special considerations and things that you're thinking about? Yeah. So I'm not too concerned when it comes to things like EVA or IP2, the Mondini's type of deformities. You know, those, uh, they tend to have good success with the CI. The gusher that many people are concerned about with an EVA I find that it's not very clinically significant in most EVAs, isolated EVAs. Now, the more abnormal the cochlea, the more deficient the modiolus, like an IP1 deformity or, you know, IP3, there's, you know, the more deficient the modiolus is, the more I think you're going to get a higher pressure CSF flow, and then you're going to actually get more of the, a real gusher. So gusher is one of the things I'm always thinking about, okay, what's the likelihood that there's going to be a gusher in these kids? Now, generally, they're managed pretty um, conservatively, you kind of let the egress come out, you know, most of the time, just letting that happen and giving it a little time and letting it equilibrate that you can implant pretty comfortably. There's very few times that I think I've encountered where you're getting a high enough pressure flow. Then, I mean, really what you do is I do my incision in the round window. I do a round window insertion virtually every time and make my incision in the round window right at the moment, I have everything ready to go if I'm prepared for a gusher. So basically I make my incision, I have everything ready to go. If it's a high pressure gusher, I just insert the implant. And that tends to stop the flow. All right. So it doesn't really affect me too much. And that's a common question the residents ask or other people ask is like the gusher, how is this going to, you know, cause us major issues? And I find that it tends to really not be a big player. 
Now, if we're talking about other malformations, then the more severe the malformation, it does affect my selection of an implant, the electrode array. All right. So I want to be prepared to potentially have multiple arrays available. So if I have a hypoplastic cochlea, I'm going to want maybe a compressed or shorter array. If I know I'm not really going to get a full insertion with a full length array. That's one, for example, where I would want a different array selection. Now, if you have like a common cavity or something like that, you know, or like an X-linked stapes kind of um, malformation, those I'm going to want more of a lateral wall array, typically trying to predict where am I going to find, you know, you know where am I not going to injure the central neural elements and where do I think the electrode's going to sit in a way that helps. So I want to at least have uh, the lateral wall array is nice. Um, it's a straight array, it's reloadable. You can put it in, you can take it out if you don't feel like it's going in. If you're meeting resistance, you can re-alter it. The perimodular arrays that are pre-curled, you can't really do that as well with. So you kind of get, it's going to sit a certain way. So I want, I typically will go with a lateral wall array if I'm going to have a more malformed cochlea. All right. So I think those are probably the main things I'm thinking about. Okay. Is there a specific array I need? And then uh, just being prepared for a gusher or probably the major things I'm usually thinking of. I don't know if this is an appropriate assertion to make, but um, how well, how are your like cochlear implant outcomes in terms of hearing, speech, usability, different, the more of an inner ear malformation that you have? Yeah. Like what are the, how do you counsel expectations or for yourself and even uh, as well as the family? I mean, that's a great question. I think it's an important one too, you know, because I think that, you know, we're often guilty of like overselling you know, what the benefit's going to be, you know, the kids with charge syndrome, like I said, tend to have like the most numerous malformation kinds of things that are there. And so I, in my mind, I'm sort of thinking, okay, I pre prepare the family for one of a few options. So I think they're really just going to get, do I think they're going to like the connection kids are going to do outstanding, right? I would say like the EVA kids, kids with minor malformations along those lines, I still expect, you know, you know, a speech perception in the 70, 90% range. Um, I think, you know, spoken language is anticipated if all the other factors are okay. Now, as you get the more malformed cochleas and I'm thinking, okay, well, I may prepare the families for the possibility that, look, we may only be able to get sound awareness out of this. All right. And you know what, we should make sure that we have a low threshold for expecting that sign language may still be needed in this particular scenario. So for a common cavity, you know, I'm going to anticipate that that's, I'm going to put that part of the conversation. You know, the, if the, if I have concerns about the nerve status, it's hypoplastic or, you know, it's not often we're implanting in those kids, but if we have some concerns about that, then, you know, again, same thing, you know, I'm going to really counsel the family ahead of time about it. So I, I do try to direct it on age, cochlear anatomy, nerve anatomy, and then, you know, any other factors I think that are in the way. I think we, sometimes it's easy to undervalue sound awareness, you know, because mm -hmm. we're so focused, hyper-focused sometimes on speech. But I, I feel like it's, um, you know, just interaction with your surroundings. Even just, you know, you hear mom's voice, just even having turned that, I think that can probably bring a lot more value than maybe we give it credit for. Completely. I, I think it's a, actually a very crucial uh, idea, especially when, you know, I mean, you and I are accustomed to working with very complicated kids. Some of those kids, even it's not the hearing that's preventing them from really getting their language development or whatever is going to occur. Many of those kids will need manual you know, communication devices regardless. It's not really just because of the hearing. So I think that what I try to do is, you know, we have mul many multiply involved kids that we're implanting. And what I, you know, in families who are trying to make that decision or we're trying to have a discussion about it, I'm thinking, okay, well, what is this kid like without an implant versus with an implant? Not 
how am I comparing this kid towards this outstanding star performer who speaks three languages, right? I'm thinking, can an implant change this kid's life when it, and then, and then the outcomes are different. It's not just language. It's about, you know, so some families are like, look, I just want them to hear my voice. Some, you know, there's definitely demonstrated benefits of being able to participate in other therapies, right? So just being able to do their physical therapy or other therapies at a higher level, right? And then you think about as they get to have more autonomy when they're older, things like that. Now I may not do a bilateral implant in those circumstances, but at least going from zero sound to one side sound awareness, I think allows a child to interact in their environment much greater, and especially if they have visual losses and other things that are compounding things, right? Absolutely. I think that's a really beautiful point. Can you talk to us a little bit about uh, complications that patients can have post-op? None. What are you talking about? <laughs> Zero. Yeah, right. So, um, you know, I think that generally speaking, um, like, you know, issues around like facial nerve are very minimal. I mean, you know, I'm fortunate to have not had any sort of those kind of complications. So I think that, you know, if you do a lot of CI surgery, then you're used to finding the nerve, which I do in every case, and then, you know, work around that. You know, again, the charge syndrome kids are the ones I worry about most. They got a bifid nerve or a nerve that's very abnormal, could potentially prevent you from doing an implant. So I always bring those up with families ahead of time. And I typically would do a case like that with one of my partners. So there's two of us doing it. So we're doing everything we can in case there's a bad, you know, sort of major complication of, of like that. You know, other ones that are described that are big ones are things like, you know, CSF leaks or, um, you know, dural injury or something along those lines. Though, you know, I don't really find that that's something I worry about too much. You can usually find enough, you can get enough exposure, whether you modify your, um, getting the interim is relatively straightforward. Uh, in most scenarios, if you have a very anterior sigmoid sinus or a low lit hanging tegmin, you have to be prepared for that. But I think I, I haven't really found that that's really going to be, uh, there have been kind of a lot of complications as a result of that. So I think facial nerve, CSF, those are very low incidence complications. Um, the ones I do talk to families about more are things like, you know, wound and skin things. And I do think that as we go to earlier, in, earlier implantation, the one that I think I worry about most is actually skin-related complications of the young kids. Now, it's not a high number. And in the, you know, studies we've, you know, kind of mentioned, you know, it's still not statistically significantly different between, you know, under one year and greater than one year of age. However, it is something that I kind of am very careful about. The modern implants that we put in, tend to be lower profile. So they're not as bulky as maybe the ones that used to be, you know, five, 10 years ago, at least. So they are slimmer, which is nicer. So it puts less tension there. Um, I do try to do a two layer closure at offset incisions with my, you know, mastoid uh, pelva flap versus the skin one. You know, I do antibiotics, you know, at the time of, I do it for a week afterwards as well, because of these young kids who are still at the ear infection range. So I think that, you know, skin related, both infections and soft tissue complications because of the thinness of the skin, I think those are things that I really focus on with the families to watch for in the perioperative period. Vertigo, I always tell them, you know, the pain is like a mild to moderate level of pain. Tylenol, Motrin are usually all I actually, in all my implants, I just, uh, whether young or older, I've gotten away from using any opioids or prescribing them and it's just Tylenol, Motrin for pain. And it tends to be, you know, one to two days of pain. And then the other thing I counsel on is usually vertigo. I think kids who have more abnormal ears, kids with Pendred syndrome, uh, or, you know, big significant EVAs, I mean, really the the more dramatic EVAs, the more likely to have vertigo complications afterwards, which, you know, I want to make sure they're aware of. But um, younger kids with normal anatomy don't typically experience vertigo too much afterwards. But, you know, those kids who are starting to walk, you know, they may, you know, I let the family know they may take a step back a little bit or you may see nystagmus or something like that. But that's, I assume that's temporary. Yeah. 
Yep. And your young kids don't see it that much. I caution them about it just in case they see the nystagmus, which I don't want them to think they're having a seizure or something. But, you know, your older kids and adults tend to experience that, especially the more aged adults. But, you know, younger kids, honestly, the vertigo is, seems to be fairly negligible unless you have those anatomic issues. What about, you know, long-term, like, um, you know, the patient that you did a CI on at nine months, now they're 18 months and they have yeah. an acute OM. The pediatrician calls you because they have a CI and mm -hmm. there's, you know, pus behind the eardrum. Um, is there a different way to manage that acute OM episode? Do you, are you jumping the tube sooner because, uh-oh, you had an implant and this is your first ear infection and I, I don't know, I don't want you to, you know, get meningitis or a complication. Yeah. How does that, how does that work? Yeah. You know, I do uh, try to, those kids who have early recurrent OM or effusions, I'll plan on putting tubes in at the time of the procedure. And a lot of times I'll just have that sort of like as a, I let families know that if on the day of I see effusions, non-purulent effusions, then, you know, I may put tubes in, or if they have purulent effusions, we may have to stay, you know, to put tubes in and, and, and reschedule the surgery. So I do that, but I have a low threshold for putting tubes in and having kids have tubes with CIs. That's not a concern that I have too much. And so then, you know, at least that allows you then the, you know, management, you know, prevention part, but then management with the topical drops. Those kids that have tubes, if they're in the first few months with, or actually, you know, honestly, if they have, in a younger age group and they're having infections, I will not only do drops, but actually the oral antibiotic as well, just to be aggressive, especially in those first two months afterwards where the risk of a soft tissue infection related to implantation tends to be the highest. I'd, if they're coming in with tuberia a month after surgery, I don't want them to just be on drops. And it's a different message we're always telling pediatricians, right? We're always saying, you know, don't do the oral antibiotics, just do drops. But in the CI kids, I say, please give the drops and the oral antibiotics. And then in the kid who's older, who doesn't have tubes and has acute OM, then it definitely there's no role for like watchful waiting. I wouldn't do these sort of like, okay, let's see, they haven't come back in two days and see how they're doing. No, no, they need an antibiotic, right? And then they need to be monitored to make sure that improves, right? So maybe they see the pediatrician and see me a couple of days, you know, several days later or a week later and just make sure that that's resolving and responding. If they're having more than one episode in a few months, then I would have a low threshold for putting tubes in. And for listeners who don't know as much about, you know, um, these types of patients, um, can you clarify that the concern for a patient who has acute otitis media and also an implant is the risk of meningitis? Is that right? Yep. So the, you know, so there's, it's interesting. I recently had to kind of review some of this stuff because I had a family who, who was refusing vaccinations. And then it was like, well, ethically, what do we do here in this scenario? And then, and it, you know, became a kind of a way to evaluate by the ethics committee and then talk to legal and like, you know, all this kind of stuff and um, documentation on it. So I kind of had to review some of this recently, but basically like, so there's, you know, the, the topic comes up regularly because of the concerns of increased risk of meningitis that occurred, especially earlier on in the early 2000s between like 2002, 2009 period. And some of that was related to, you know, specific devices that were recalled because of their known, like a positioner issue uh, as a novel thing that was introduced that clearly was traumatic and caused increased risk of meningitis that was taken off the market. So then, then what is the risk of, of meningitis that occurs in kids who get implants solely because of the implants? Now, we, we do know that the risk of meningitis is higher in kids who have anomalies, inner ear anomalies. That does raise the background from the baseline. If you tease out, okay, what is the risk of that versus those that have, you know, just cochlear implantation, then it tend, there is an elevation that's probably about two to three times the baseline by having an implant alone in relatively normal anatomy, all right? 
but it's not, the data is not so clear about what it is. But initially there was a concern that it was about 30 times or even a hundred times higher. All right. That seems to be not true. All right. Even a kid, especially who has relatively normal anatomy, just has a CI, the risk is not that much greater than baseline, but it is elevated. And the effect of meningitis, which we're concerned of specifically bacterial meningitis from pneumococcal, from strep pneumonia, all right, then that is a devastating consequence. So even if it's a very low incidence, it is important we make sure we do everything we can to protect against it. So we do have a strict vaccination protocol for it. So, you know, in our practice, what we do is we actually administer the vaccines on site for anything that is not done at the pediatrician's office. The appropriate vaccinations that need to be done are all the routine childhood vaccines. So the pneumococcal, you know, the uh, vaccines that are age appropriate, including Prevnar, the 13 one, but at two years of age, they should get the pneumovax, which is the 23 valent pneumococcal vaccine. That's not always given to otherwise healthy kids. And that's the one that we have to make sure is really on everyone's radar. We still make sure they're appropriately vaccinated for Hib um, and Haemophilus influenza as well as do the annual influenza vaccines. So anything we can do to reduce the incidence of acute otitis media, plus all other pathogens that occur, you know, that's all super important. We want to make sure we don't lose that as well. So we want them to have all the routine vaccines basically. And then at two years of age, have pneumovax. That's, you know, it's relatively straightforward on that end. Now, if they haven't had their vaccines, there's a lot of like timing issues about, you know, the order you do vaccines and when you can give them and all those things, right? But it is important that they're vaccinated for that. The reason we do on-site vaccinations is because we did find that at times we sent them out to get a vaccine for meningitis. They sometimes came back for with a meningococcal vaccine, which is not what we're trying to get vaccinated for. So we wanted to make sure there was no confusion. A lot of pediatricians offices don't actually have pneumovax on-site. And so, so that never really caused delays. We just, our nurses provided on-site. And so for those patients who have a CI, who have acute otitis media, we could treat with Augment and, and follow them closely and that's appropriate. Yeah. Great. Just yeah. want to be, just want to make sure. No, no, I appreciate that. Yeah. And if there's a concern that it's not resolving, then the question is, do you go quickly to tubes? Um, I'm not a big fan of like IV antibiotics for something along those lines, you know, but that's, I agree with you. And then just to clarify, you'll do tubes at the time of implant. You don't mm -hmm. take them and put a tube in uh, six weeks ahead of time to then put an implant in. You can do it all at the same time. If I have it my way and I can anticipate it, I'd prefer to do it staged. So you know, if they're getting a second ABR or an MRI. So I'm typically thinking, okay, at the time of getting an, an ABR or an MRI, do they need tubes? I'd rather do it ahead of time if I have it my way. But there's, you know, especially if the kids like, you know, the, have the, you know, at the time of implantation, if you haven't really seen them in a few months, you may look at their ears and find that there's something going on there. And then it's, I want to make sure they're aware of the possibility of tubes at that setting as well. I think we've covered everything that we you know, wanted to ask you about. Is there anything that you feel like you know, we, we missed or anything you just um, would like to leave our, our listeners with, you know, fi final pearls or, or other considerations. No, I mean, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, I do think, I guess a couple other things as I was thinking about it, is it really any child who has an implant, who's not doing well, you know, if you, you see the capture them in your office, send them back to the CI center to evaluate what's going on. They should, you know, make sure their mapping is up to date. So they should, you know, if, if need be getting a CT scan to make sure there's no issues with the integrity of the implants. But, you know, I'm always thinking as I see them later on, if I haven't seen them in a couple of years, because now they're in school and they're, you know, nine years old or whatever it is, my goal at that point is to make sure they're making the progress we anticipated them to make. And if they're not, like it always pains me when I see somebody comes back 
and they haven't seen anybody in like six years. Right. And then, you know, and their speech is not very well managed and they're struggling in school. And I'm like, God, oh, man, I just wish, you know, that they had seen somebody. Right. And this is not always like, because they've seen an ENT who didn't do this. It's the families don't always know that this is something they need to have done the long-term mapping and programming and all that stuff that needs to have done. So I think that if they ever, you come across someone and they're not really performing very well, or if you can ask those questions about it, then just send them back to the CI center. If they haven't had a mapping in a year, they need to be seeing somebody. All right. And we do try to, you know, help families with those transitions on the educational milestones. So, you know, like kindergarten, as they go to middle school and high school, there is still a ceiling on some of the things that an implant can provide kids. They still do have issues with reading and spelling and literacy kinds of things. So we try to also make sure they're like on IEPs um, on, or 504s where they don't have services, but, you know, making sure that that educational component, you know, if I think about all the things like a family will ask me, the, very, the, the things are going on in their brain at like one month of life when they find out their kid is deaf, right? Always thinking about things like sports and academics and all these things. And they can do these things very well, but they still need to be ushered even after that critical period of like when they start to get into school. And I think it's not in our realm to typically think about this as otolaryngologists, right? We're not teachers and all this kind of stuff. But I've definitely seen that as time has gone on, I've really taken on just making sure that like we really plug them in with the resources appropriately. So if they are succeeding, it does take work even after they've left our halls. You know what I mean? So, you know, when I see the older kids, I'm really worried about the long-term outcomes a lot. It's, you know, I don't, I don't really have a specific thing I'm adding here other than if you send them back to the CI center, then they should at least, you know, or speech therapists when they're older are doing things like literacy evals, making sure their IP is written, that they have all these things from an educational standpoint that can still help them, even if they don't need speech therapy specifically. All right. So, you know, have a low threshold for getting them in for speech and back to the CI center. So just really quickly, Prashant, um, yep. will you just tell us sort of like when I think of ear tubes, you know, I see them back between one and three months after the surgery, get an audio, see tube check every six to nine months, plus minus audio, depending on speech, and then making sure at three years I have some sort of status of their tube. What kind of, what's the follow-up? Should they be coming every year? Do they see you that one month? You get the, when do you put the processor on? What's the sort of post-op short-term and long-term look like? Yeah. So after surgery, then I'll see them at a post-op visit, which I've typically made a telemedicine visit at this point, just for an incision check. And then because they will be seeing the audiologist in person who will be able to monitor if anybody has any concern, then they'll notify me and I can always get them in for an in-person. But I'll see them at that post-op visit. And then I'll usually will see them at six months afterwards. Make sure that they've, you know, done their, that they've been plugged in and been making their appointments. I'd rather find out in, you know, in several months, as opposed to like a year later that they'd never made their activation appointment or they're not seeing speech for auditory therapy stuff, right? So I'll see them at the post-op, I'll see them at six months, and I'll see them every six months for, you know, the first year or so, two years. Depending, the younger kids, I'll see them every six months until they get into pretty much into kindergarten. The older kids, I'll see them six months for at least a year and then annually. So I do want to see them every year. You know, we have like a, there is like a Medicaid expansion, secondary insurance kind of thing in our state, which require, if they're eligible for, which hearing loss is an eligible, um, qualifying diagnosis, then in order to continue to be services, they have to see me once a year. So that's a nice thing to help some people keep coming back. The older kids don't often see me in a year, every year, you know, it's just not going to necessarily happen, especially if they're doing really well, but they should still be seeing audiology at least yearly for their mapping. Well, are there any other resources uh, that you think are important for 
our listeners who are more interested or have any other, you know, things that they would want to look and read into deeper for pediatric CI? Oh, you one, before I answer that, one last thing I want to mention was MRI compatibility. Um, it's a common topic. And I'll just point out that the, all three manufacturers now have MRI compatible devices that we put in. So anybody implanted after about, you know, certainly 2019 and afterwards is going to have, for the most part, an MRI compatible device. Now, in the, and so the manufacturers have updated information about MRI compatibility. Most do not need to have a magnet removed at this point, but it's still device specific. The stuff is readily available on the uh, websites by the, each manufacturer. And so that's a common thing that I think we'll all get called for, which is, you know, what happens with this one? Um, and if, especially if you, you're not at, at the CI center where it was done and they're calling you about them getting a, like a pelvic MRI, what do you do about it? But, you know, you can always send back to the CI center or um, just look at that because most of those now can be done going forward, at least without having to worry about it. So meaning you don't have to wrap the head anymore. Right. Even the head wrap now um, for the, uh, again, the current ones that are being put in for all three devices don't need a head wrap or magnet removal. Now there are some actually, you know, surprisingly this happened last year. They've actually like at least Cochlear Americas, which was providing head wrap has sort of withdrawn that. So they're not even recommending it anymore. And so, and actually MRI and their, their information is now updated on the websites to really not support the head wrap. So we're back to not really being able to use that very well. Most MRI places will say, look, that the manufacturer says we can't do it. Even if you say, look, we want to wrap, they'll be like, well, the manufacturer says you can't. So they've kind of, that was a little bit of a snoozer thing that just happened this past year. Um, that caught me off guard recently, but generally speaking, I guess, anytime you're confronted with it, just make sure you look at device specific MRI requirements, but the modern ones are at least going to hopefully take that out of the picture. And then you did ask me the question about, um, which I already forgot. So what was that question? <laughs> There's any other resources <laughs> that you think are articles or, you know, PDCI websites, uh, organizations, if anybody, you know, who's listening out there just wants to, you know, dig deeper or have a better understanding of what we've gone over. Yeah. I'm a big supporter of the American Cochlear Implant Alliance, ACIA, and the resources they have on that website. The, you know, AG Bell has, um, Alexander Bell is... They do a lot of list like the, on the speech and auditory verbal their uh, ABT side of things has a lot of information. Um, I can send some resources for you to put at the end here that are more specific about PCI, like chapters and stuff, um, things like that, that if people want a general review, I'm happy to send some that you can include if you have notes or things after. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Prashiz. It was awesome yeah. to catch up. I'm like super in awe and so proud of you. Anyways, um, thank you for coming on the show. And I hopefully I'll see you in person sometime yeah, soon. I would love to. With the professor glasses. Make sure that <laughs> I know they're gone now. I got these contacts. <laughs> yeah, no, like... I'd love to hear your uh, fiery Southern accent again in person. You'll get it. <laughs> uh, we just want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Uh, returning listeners, um, any new listeners, we appreciate your time. We want to thank our sound engineer for today, Kieran Ganon, as well as our med students. We have two med students that help us write our blogs. Um, coming out of the University of Minnesota, we have Varun Sagi and University of Texas San Antonio and Wasik Nadim. And our uh, medical education content and personal relations officer, um, our MVP, Ann Dang. And, and we want to uh, encourage our listeners to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. Uh, this helps us grow and supports our efforts to bring you this free content as much as we can. Uh, please follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable EMT. All right. It's a wrap. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye.